Hello there and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. This is part five of our six-part series in the book of Job. And today we'll be looking at chapters 38 to 42. And this episode is entitled, The Unclear Voice in the Whirlwind. The story of Job unfolds when Job, who is a wealthy man, is deeply devoted to his God and his religion. Everything is going well for Job. He's rich. He's got a big family. His marriage is great. And then in an instant, all of that disappears in chapter one. His material wealth vanishes. People steal from him. And his daughters and his sons are all killed in a terrible natural disaster. If that wasn't enough, Job then becomes deathly ill in chapter two, and this illness is severely painful. But despite all of this suffering, Job holds fast to his faith in chapters one and two. Then his three friends show up, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and they comfort him for seven days in silence. They sit in the pain with Job. But after seven days of silence, Job dramatically changes his tone. He no longer insists that God is good, but instead insists that the opposite is true. That God is bad and that God is the sinner in this story. Now Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar do not like hearing these words from Job, so they rebuke him. And if you've been with us the last several weeks at Paradox, you know that Job in this story is a metaphor for innocent suffering. In other words, the author doesn't feel that Job has done anything to deserve this massive amount of suffering that he is currently enduring. Now, this was a theological challenge to the day, and the challenge is represented by Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. These friends in this story of Job are a metaphor for religion. And the more we read through the next several chapters of Job, it becomes apparent that these friends are the villain of the story. In other words, religion is the villain in the book of Job. Because religion is pointing the finger at the innocent sufferer and saying, Job is suffering because he sinned. And Job, for nearly all of 42 chapters in this book, continually says, no, I am innocent. Job is a metaphor for innocent suffering. And if we apply the story of Job to our current experience in America today, then it becomes apparent that Job is a metaphor for the experience of black Americans. And Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are the ones who are pointing the finger at Job, at Black America, and saying, you deserve this. In other words, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are a metaphor today for white America. And white America is the villain in this poem. And white America is pointing the finger at Black America and saying, Black America has brought this upon themselves. And black America responds in the same words of Job, insisting that black America is innocent. The other thing that we need to note before we dive into the reading for today is that from chapter three on, the moment that Job begins to curse God, 
from chapter 3 on to chapter 41, the whole literary structure of the book changes. Because in chapter 1 and 2, it's written in prose, but then chapters 3 through 41 are written in verse. And this story is told through a poem. So here at Paradox, over the last several weeks, we've been going through this poem and talking about what the poem says about suffering today. From chapter 3 to chapter 14, what we talked about is that the book of Job offers companionship instead of answers in our suffering. And we talked about how the church would be better at being the church if they were more concerned with companionship instead of answers. Then two weeks ago, we looked at the second section of this poem between chapters 15 to 21, and we discussed how healthy religion leads one to trust their personal experience with God. And the theology of Job is that when your tradition and your personal experience contradict each other, you should trust your experience and discard your religion. Then last week, we talked about chapters 22 to 31, and it revealed that the death of God is not a singular event, but instead is a universal experience that we all encounter at some point in our lifetime. Now, after that third section of the poem, there is a section that many scholars believe was added later. And this is chapters 32 to 37, and it centers around a new character named Elihu. Now, Elihu is not referenced before or after this section of scripture, and Elihu's primary purpose is to set out and discredit Job as Job continues to insist on his innocence. In other words, Elihu is a later addition that sets out to make Job the villain of this poem and to save face for religion. I will tell you that I have read these six chapters and I find them to be incredibly boring. And the book of Job, in my opinion, is much better if you skip over the Elihu section because you get closer to the original intent that the author held when they wrote this story. So here you have this poem that goes on for chapters, questioning why the innocent suffer and why God doesn't intervene and help those who are crying out for mercy. Why do bad things happen to good people? It is one of the most difficult and perplexing questions for anyone who believes in a powerful and loving God. And after asking this question for so many chapters, God finally decides to answer Job and this central question of why the innocent must suffer in chapters 38 to 41. Now this four chapter monologue begins by promising answers. We read in Job 38.1, the narrator's words, then the unnameable answered Job from within the whirlwind. So if you have ever wondered why the innocent suffer, why God doesn't intervene, why God doesn't relieve us from our suffering, then we read the next chapters with excitement because we feel like we are finally getting some answers. So I'd like to read all of Job chapter 38 to discuss the answer as to why the innocent suffer. God says from a whirlwind, Who is this whose ignorant words smear my design with darkness? Stand up now like a man, 
I will question you. Please instruct me. Where were you when I planned the earth? Tell me if you are so wise. Do you know who took its dimensions, measuring its length with a cord? What were its pillars built on? Who laid down the cornerstone while the morning stars burst out singing and the angels shouted for joy? Were you there when I stopped the waters as they issued gushing from the womb? When I wrapped the ocean in clouds and swaddled the sea in the shadows? When I closed it in with barriers and set its boundaries saying, here you may come, but no farther. Here shall your proud waves break. Have you ever commanded morning or guided dawn to its place to hold the corners of the sky and shake off the last few stars? All things are touched with color. The whole world is changed. Have you walked through the depths of the ocean or dived to the floor of the sea? Have you stood at the gates of doom or looked through the gates of death? Have you seen the edge of the universe? Speak up if you have such knowledge. Where is the road to light? Where does darkness live? Perhaps you will guide them home or show them the way to your house. You know, since you have been there and are older than all of creation. Have you seen where the snow is stored or visited the storehouse of hail, which I keep for the day of terror for the final hours of the world? Where is the west wind released? and the east wind sent down to earth. Who cuts a path for the thunderstorm and carves a road for the rain to water the desolate wasteland, the land where no man lives, to make the wilderness blossom and cover the desert with grass? Does the rain have a father? Who has begotten the dew? Out of whose belly is the ice born? Whose womb labors with the sleet? The water's surface stiffens. The lake grows hard as rock. Can you tie the twins together or loosen the hunter's cords? Can you light the evening star or lead out the bear and her cubs? Do you know all the patterns of heaven and how they affect the earth? If you shout commands to the thunderclouds, will they rush off to do your bidding? If you clap for the bolts of lightning, will they come and say, here we are? Who gathers up the storm clouds, slits them, and pours them out, turning dust to mud and soaking the cracked clay? Do you hunt game for the lioness and feed her ravenous cubs when they crouch in their den, impatient or lie in ambush in the thicket? Who finds her prey at nightfall when her cubs are aching with hunger? And after reading all of chapter 38, if you're like me, you hear God asking Job all of these questions and you say, wait a second, where are the answers? The narrator told us that God is answering Job, but God just keeps asking Job all these kind of ridiculous, random questions. And if you go through and count it up, in chapter 38, God asks Job 28 questions. Then in chapter 39, God asks Job 14 more questions. And you would assume that after 42 questions, God would have made his point. So chapter 40 begins with two more questions to Job. God asks from the whirlwind, has God's accuser resigned? Has my critic swallowed his tongue? And Job responds to God, I am speechless. What can I answer? I put my hand to my mouth. I have said too much already. Now I will speak no more. 
So in other words, Job basically says, yes, you've made your point. I'm not going to say anything else. But God just keeps on going forward. God asks, do you dare to deny my judgment? Am I wrong because you are right? And so in chapter 40, God asks Job six more questions. And in chapter 41, God asks Job 16 more questions. In other words, if you look at this whole monologue from the whirlwind, God quotes, answers Job, and quote, with 64 questions. Job has legitimate questions and we're promised answers and God just bombards Job with 64 questions. And after all 64 questions, Job in chapter 42 says to God, I know you can do all things and nothing you wish is impossible. I have spoken to the unspeakable and tried to grasp the infinite. I had heard of you with my ears, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I will be quiet, comforted that I am dust. And after expressing his contentment in his own mortality, the whirlwind then shifts its focus to Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And from the whirlwind, God begins to speak to these three friends. God says, my servant Job will pray for you, and for his sake, I will overlook your sin. For you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. And then God demands that they repent and offer sacrifices for forgiveness. And then the whirlwind disappears. Now, if you're like me, you read to chapter 42 and you respond with two words. Um, what? What just happened here? There's this whirlwind that promises answers. There's a bunch of questions. Job says, I'm fine that I'm going to die. The whirlwind then turns to the friends that represent religion. There is a sharp rebuke and a demand for repentance. And then the whirlwind's gone. What just happened in this story? Well, I think there's three things that happened and two of them are irrefutable facts. And the third one is a bit of speculation. So let's start with the two irrefutable facts. The first fact is that God does not answer why the innocent suffer. I think that's pretty clear, right? We're promised answers and God doesn't answer that. Now, at first, this is extremely off-putting because a lot of us would like to know why bad things happen to good people. But God doesn't answer that, which raises the question, why not? Well, imagine if God did answer why the innocent suffer. What would happen at that point? Well, all of a sudden, the people who are not suffering would look at the innocent who are suffering and say, hmm... Those people over there, not so innocent. They got what was coming to them. So while God does not answer why the innocent suffer, another way to look at it is that God does not justify innocent suffering. He does not say it's okay that Job had to bury his children. It's logically okay and it makes sense. Let me explain to you why Job should be able to accept this. 
So while God doesn't answer why the innocent suffer, at the same time, God does not justify the innocent suffering. Whenever we can answer why the innocent suffer, we simultaneously justify their suffering, which is entirely problematic. And when it comes to what this metaphor means for us today, with Joe being a metaphor for black America, it means that black Americans are not to blame for racism. And any attempt to justify why black Americans deserve the horrific sin of racism and the pain that they have endured is ultimately to justify that pain. When the reality that Christians everywhere need to accept is that black Americans are not to blame for racism. Which brings us to the second irrefutable fact of this passage of scripture. God condemns very clearly Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Now, the original author intended for these three friends to be a metaphor for religion, and so God strongly condemns any religion that blames. Any religion that looks at someone who is suffering and says, you deserve this. God tells them to repent and to make things right. But when we look at what this metaphor means for us today, it tells us that God condemns white Americans who blame black Americans for the racism they endure. Now, as a white American, I will tell you, I have been told statistics, I have been told narratives, I have been told stories about how black Americans deserve the pain they are suffering. I am not proud of this, but I have repeated those stories and those statistics at times in my life, and I have blamed black Americans for the racism they have endured. To me and all of the white Americans who believe that black Americans have brought this suffering upon themselves, God condemns us in this story. Because in this story, God condemns any person who points their finger at an innocent person's suffering and blames them for their own suffering. Which brings us to the third fact that is a little bit more of speculation. Because after reading through 64 questions, the only question we can ask in response is, what is God trying to accomplish? Well, when you look at the nature of the questions, you cannot ignore the scale and the grand generosity of these questions. I mean, God asks Job, have you seen the edge of the universe? And when you consider the grand scale of God's questions, I believe that God is inviting Job to see a bigger picture. Yes, Job is suffering, but God is laying out all of the universe before Job and asking him to see it from a bigger perspective to see how he is one part of what has come before him, what he is currently experiencing, and what will come after him. And God is unflinching in the portrait that God lays before Job. God includes both the highs and the lows, the celebrations and the lamentations, the life and the death. 
God is inviting Job to see a much bigger picture than Job is currently seeing. And Job catches a glimpse of it. And he responds with these words. I had heard of you, God, with my ears, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I will be quiet, comforted that I am dust. Now, these are strange words, but when I read them, there is only one word that defines all of Job's words. And that word is reverence. God invites Job to see a bigger picture, and Job responds with reverence. Now, we have to be very clear as to what reverence is. Reverence is not acceptance. Reverence is not moving on from grief. Reverence is not an amnesia of sin that came before. Reverence is deep respect for the sanctity of life. So God invites Job to see a bigger picture. And Job's response is reverence. This reminds me of a story that happened 10 years ago when I was a grad student at La Sierra University. Now, I was taking a class from the legendary Dr. Charles Teal, who wanted us to see a bigger picture of Christianity than our denomination afforded us. So Dr. Teal would take us to different churches from different denominations to see the diversity and grandness of the scale of Christianity. Now, there was one Sunday in 2010 when Dr. Teal took us to First African Methodist Episcopal Church in Los Angeles, California. Now, we walked in, we sat down as a class, and immediately my eyes drifted upward to a giant mural that was painted right above the choir loft. Now, this mural did not blend in with the background. It was painted with bright, vivid colors and depicted 30 or 40 different black people in various poses and scenes from history. Now, there was one scene in the bottom left that my eyes immediately went to. This scene was a cotton field, and it showed a picture of black slaves picking cotton in the midst of white slave owners. Now, I remember seeing that 10 years ago in 2010, and I remember exactly what I thought. I thought to myself in the middle of this church service, why can't they just leave the slavery thing behind? Now, I am not proud to admit my thoughts on that morning to you on this podcast today. But I'm telling you this because it shows that when I was presented with black history, I aggressively responded with rejection. And a few months after this story happened, I was granted the responsibility of being a youth pastor at a local church. And what I would have never admitted to myself that I can now admit to you today is that I had no interest in black history back then. And I'd prefer for it to be kept under wraps. You see, what happened that day is there was this giant, beautiful mural. And when I was presented with it, I felt threatened. 
And I asked the question, why can't they just leave the slavery thing behind? Which was a rejection of the bigger picture. This mural was quite literally inviting me to see a bigger picture. And rather than responding with reverence, I responded with rejection. Now what's obvious is that I had no clue who the people in the mural were and I had no interest in learning their names. But a much better question to respond to this mural would have been, can you please tell me who is depicted in the mural? Can you tell me their stories and why you felt their stories were so important that you painted this mural in your church? And the church is more than happy to answer this question because you can go on the church's website, see a picture of the mural, and they will tell you who every person depicted in the mural is. When you look closely at the mural, in the top left corner, there is pictures of Africans thriving in African society by building pyramids and making advancements in democracy. Then in the bottom left, there is the horrific sin of slavery, but they chose to include it as part of their story because it tells people where they have come from and reminds and honors those who have come before them. Then in the top right, there is Richard Allen who has an ax in his hands and he is chopping wood. He's chopping wood because after he worked his long slave hours, he would stay up late in the night working a second job, which a few slaves could do. And he was able to purchase his own freedom and his brother's freedom with the money that he earned. He later became a preacher, and this is depicted in the mural as well, and he was the founder of the first African Methodist Episcopal denomination. In the top right is his wife, Sarah Allen, and Sarah Allen was the first missionary of the first African Methodist Episcopal denomination. Then in the bottom right, there is a picture of a woman surrounded by sheep and next to a covered wagon. This woman was Biddy Mason, who lived from the year 1818 to 1891. Biddy Mason was born into slavery in the early 19th century in Mississippi. And her slave owner was cruel and mean, but eventually he converted to Mormonism. And there was hopes among the slaves that he would free the slaves upon an encounter with God. But he did not free his slaves. Instead, he participated in the westward expansion that is so central to Mormon history, and he made his slaves walk alongside him as he rode in a covered wagon all the way from Mississippi to California. He eventually settled in a city that is not too far from here called San Bernardino, California, where he continued to enslave Biddy Mason. Now, shortly after they arrived there, California applied for statehood and was granted it, and they entered the Union as a free state. Shortly thereafter, Biddy Mason sued her slave owner for her freedom, and she won her freedom in a Los Angeles court in the mid-19th century. Now that she was a free woman, Biddy Mason began to amass wealth and eventually was able to buy a house. And in that house, she invited friends over on Sunday morning for a church service. And those friends formed a church which would eventually become First African Methodist Episcopal Church of Los Angeles, 
whose congregation I was sitting in in that moment. From the church's website, we read, First African Methodist Episcopal Church, by its very existence, recognizes that human, social, political, and moral development are a living hope. As long as we maintain our portion of the tested and proved contract between God and us, which is the name of the mural, God and us. And depicted at the center, but at the bottom of the mural are the pews that I was sitting in with people worshiping in those pews. And if you take the time to learn what the mural is about, you can see that this mural is done in the same vein that Job 38 to 42 was written in. It's almost like it's asking us the question, can you see how you are part of all of this? Can you see how you are not sitting there in an isolated experience, but you are the hopes and dreams of the people who came before us? And this is what this church stands for and fights for, and you are part of it. And it's almost like the person who painted the mural looked at all of the history of First African Methodist Episcopal Church and before the church existed and drew a big circle around it and said, all of this is sacred. And will you respond to this bigger picture with reverence or rejection. Every Christian I know would agree with the statement that life is sacred. And when I look at children like my own, Maya and Bodhi, age three and six, I'm just, I'm jealous of how easy it is for them to be content in life. The pandemic has been challenging for them, but the minute we say, hey, you guys can watch a movie tonight, it's like there's nowhere else they'd rather be. Life is good again because, wow, they get to pick the movie. (laughs) And children have no problem agreeing with, they may have a hard time understanding the words, but they would fully agree with the idea that life is sacred. And for the majority of my childhood, I believe that life is sacred and life is good and that people were good and things would work out in the end. But there was this moment when I was in fourth grade when my grandfather was diagnosed with cancer. And I remember thinking to myself, it's going to be okay. I have God on my side. I will pray to God for a cure. And because God has seen how devoted I am to God, God will answer my prayer. But then a year later, my grandfather died. And with that unanswered prayer, I went to this central premise that life is sacred and I just rearranged the words. I asked myself, is life sacred? I mean, if there's cancer in death, is life sacred or is it just a curse that we have to endure? Well, as I continue to grow and look back at my grandfather's life and how grateful I was for him, Yes, cancer and death are difficult things, but I had to look at the time I spent with my grandfather and said, well, actually, I can include those things when I talk about life being sacred. I can see a bigger picture that includes death and cancer and still affirm the truth that life is, in fact, 
a holy expedition. But then as life went on, I started to encounter more people and there were some people who were really aggressive toward me. I experienced betrayal and greed and hatred. And these actions made me question that central premise once again. I asked, is life sacred? And I started looking at the value of free choice and what it meant to be free, loving human beings and how you had to include those things if you wanted love to be meaningful. And after some time, and I mean, I mean some time, my brothers and sisters and friends, I began to draw a whole circle around life and included betrayal and greed and hatred. And I said, yes, life is sacred with all of these things. And when you look at all of the suffering that the world is enduring, all of the apathy toward the suffocating of the world and the environment, all of the hatred that people propose, it makes me question whether or not life is sacred and whether or not human beings are good creatures. But with some time and some energy and doing my best to back up and see a whole picture, I try to put the work in to draw a circle around the whole thing of what I know to be true and declare that life is still sacred. Now, when you consider four centuries of racism here in America, it should make all of us question whether or not life is sacred. And the truth is, it's not my business to draw a circle around racism and to say that life is sacred even with this because I've never borne the brunt of this horrific sin. I have only benefited and taken privilege from four centuries of racism. And it's only recently in my life that I've kind of started to pay attention to it and, and woken up as to how I've benefited from this privilege and how much easier my life is than my brothers, sisters, and friends of color. And when you think of all of the innocent suffering that is encapsulated in that statement of four centuries of racism, it should make all of us question, is life sacred? Why do the innocent suffer? God, why aren't you doing something about this injustice? So I don't know. I don't know if life is sacred when you include four centuries of racism. The racism and white Americans like myself who have perpetrated this sin on black Americans for far too long really make me question the sanctity of life. And in the midst of this uncertainty, maybe God would speak to us through a whirlwind. And if God spoke to us, what do you think God would say? Because I'd like to close this episode by rewriting Job 38 to 42 and imagining God speaking from a whirlwind in the midst of all of this racism that is happening here in America today. What if God spoke to us today from a whirlwind? I believe that God 
may say something like this. Who is this mortal whose finite words dare to challenge the infinite perspective? Where were you when Africans were crammed into slave ships and sailed across the Atlantic? What does it feel like to be sold and traded as property? Tell me if you are so wise. Do you know what it's like to work all day in the sun with no promise of compensation? What was it that kept these humans going? Were you there when Frederick Douglass taught himself how to write? Pontificate for me about the fragile egos of each of those white kids that he manipulated into teaching him every letter of the alphabet. What was it like to be enslaved and then to be woken up in the middle of the night and see the face of Harriet Tubman as she whispers to you, I am here to take you home. If you saw her face in that moment, would you still deny that literal salvation exists? Tell me if you dare how many tears Solomon cried when after 12 years of slavery, he reunited with his family. Surely if you were there with that family, you would have removed your shoes in reverence for the injustice of it all, but also for the holiness of that reunion. Did you carry the weight of guilt when Sojourner Truth left her five-year-old son behind so that she might escape to her own freedom? Describe for me the determination within her when she filed a lawsuit in New York, suing for her son's freedom as well. Please answer me, what did it sound like when she won and she hugged her boy in free liberation? Were you there in the Supreme Court when justices ruled that Dred Scott wasn't technically a human being? What about the day the Supreme Court ruled against Homer Plessy and created the Jim Crow era? How sore were Biddy Mason's feet after walking from Mississippi to California? How calloused was her heart after religion refused to see her as a free human being? How grand was her smile when she won her freedom, even though her freedom should have belonged to her all along? How loudly did she sing during the church services in her living room? Surely you would know. Assign a number, if you can, to the sheer volume of bravery Ida B. Wells possessed as she wrote investigative articles about the horrific sin of lynching. And when white supremacists set her printing press on fire in retaliation to her articles, what was it inside of Ida B. Wells that motivated her to eschew silence and speak even louder? How deep was heaven's anger when America sent 14-year-old George Stinney to the electric chair for a murder he didn't commit? Did you grieve with Mammy Till when she heard that Emmett her son was murdered? What shape did her sadness take when his white murderers were acquitted by a white judge and an all-white jury? Put into words, if you dare, the audacity within her when she left her son's casket open because she, quote, wanted the world to see what they did to my baby. You should declare Mammy Till to be a prophet because she called attention to pain that America preferred to avoid. Why did Rosa Parks refuse to stand up on that bus? 
You should ask her because she knows. She told the world, quote, I thought of Emmett Till, and when the bus driver ordered me to the back, I could not move. What did Rosa Parks mutter in her cell that evening? Surely you would know if you are so smart. How wearisome was the betrayal in Martin's heart in Birmingham. Do you remember that the white clergy of Birmingham condemned his actions in print? How deep was his well of inspiration that he could fight back with his letter, condemning white Christians who were not willing to risk their well-being for justice? How sharp was the anger in Malcolm when he saw violence freely inflicted on black bodies and was repeatedly told by white bodies that violence in return would never solve anything. If you are so smart in all of your finite wisdom, then rationally explain to me what thousands of black Americans felt on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma. They crossed the bridge with one simple demand, we deserve the right to vote. And on the other side of that bridge, an all-white police force unleashed billy clubs, horses, and tear gas on them. Where did their courage come from? As they rallied with tenacity to march across that same bridge 13 days later and all the way to Montgomery in the name of equality. Speak up if you have witnessed such resiliency with your own eyes. Would you dare to mutter a word if you saw this. Wouldn't you bow your head in reverence? What precisely was it inside James Baldwin that determined writing with unflinching honesty was better than selling more books? Describe for me in perfect detail, if you can, the mirror that Angela Davis peered into as she prepared for her day in court. Did you see the corners of her smile as she delighted in the bounce? of her curls. How gritty was the chutzpah of Shirley Chisholm? How large were Guy Bluford's pupils when he gazed upon the earth from space? How finely tuned are Serena's muscles to serve a tennis ball at 128.6 miles per hour? What did Barack Obama feel the first time he was alone in the Oval Office? Surely you would know that because I'm sure you were there. Did you think that I forgot about Trayvon or that I don't long for justice for Michael? Did you go running with Ahmad every day? Did you know Brianna's favorite movie? Do you think that I would care about the murder of George only if I had video evidence? Are you weary from the history of this country? What is it exactly that inspires all of these protesters to think that things can be different today? Do you believe that things can be different today? And after all of these questions, the whirlwind turned to white America, including Craig Hadley, and said, how dare you? demand that black America needs to leave slavery behind. How dare you question the validity of racially motivated police brutality and never take the time to learn the story of Selma? How 
dare you insist on the white narrative of the American empire and ignore the history of those whom you have oppressed. I am angry with you, white America, because you inflicted this pain of racism upon black Americans. You have spoken falsely, but they have told the truth. Repent. Listen. Change. And just as quickly as the whirlwind appeared, the whirlwind then disappeared, leaving you with the question, what response do you have for God's questions? My brothers, my sisters, and my friends, may we hold reverence for the sanctity of life. Amen. <laughs>